Good morning. Welcome to the Center for Strategic International Studies. My name is Andy Cutchins. I'm director of the Russia and Eurasia program here. And it's a great uh, honor and a real pleasure to welcome back to CSIS a dear friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Vladislav Inezemsev, uh, whom I've known, I think we've known each other since about 2003, when I came to Moscow to run the Carnegie Moscow Center. And uh, uh, Dr. Inezemsev is a, a remarkable person, quite an intellectual, uh, and <clears throat> has not only read probably every interesting book that's been written in the, the past century, but uh, has written about many of them, and as always has insightful and interesting things to say about, say about them. He is an economist uh, by training, uh, and currently a professor at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow. Um, he is really kind of a, a polymath and a polyglot, uh, quite well-versed in many different issues. Uh, in fact, yesterday evening, he was uh, leading a very interesting uh, dinner seminar for a, a small group uh, looking at Ukraine based on an article that he'd written in the American Interest uh, back in late, uh, late September. Uh, and today, he's going to be talking about a set of issues around Siberian development that have been very close to him uh, personally and professionally for a number of years. He's been a regular participant in the uh, annual Krasnoyarsk a forum on, uh, on Siberia, although was un, uh, unfortunately unable to participate this year, as it turned out, because of some visa issues. Uh, he has written uh, a couple of books and uh, many articles on this topic. And uh, he, in fact, spoke here at CSIS almost two years ago on the topic. It was a very, very interesting session. And given that the uh, the fate of the development of Siberia and the Russian Far East is such an integral part of what uh, I refer to as Russia's Asia pivot. Uh, I thought it would be very interesting to have uh, Slava this morning uh, update us and share his thoughts on how things have been going uh, with this project, which Mr. Putin has identified as, I think, one of his legacy projects, so to speak. Um, so with that, let me uh, turn the floor over to uh, to Dr. Yunizemsev, and uh, we uh, look forward to your remarks and the very interesting discussion, I'm sure, forthcoming. Thanks very much. Uh, okay, and uh, thank you so much. <coughs> it's a pleasure to be here again. Uh, actually, uh, I remember that I was uh, making a presentation on the subject on Siberia uh, and on the Far Eastern development in Russia two years ago. Uh, at this uh, the same uh, uh, at the same room, I, see, I even believe. But uh, these days, of course, I can add something. I will uh, quite, uh, in short version, uh, repeat what I would like to say about the current situation in the Siberian economy, what may be the future developments, and then, of course, I will uh focus in a little bit more detail on uh, this eastern turn of russia which was proclaimed several years ago how it is doing now what uh, can one expect uh of uh, this change in uh, russian regional policy uh, and uh, i hope uh, the discussion on all this issue will be quite uh, quite uh, intense and interesting 
So uh, first of all, I would like to begin with uh, uh, the very notion of Siberia. Um, I will base uh, the majority of um, my thoughts uh, today on the book. And we also together with um, a very old time friend of mine, uh, Valery Zubov, who used to be the governor of the first elected governor of Krasnoyarsk region back in 1992, 1996. Uh, and um, uh, I will begin with uh, the idea that uh, Siberia is a region of the Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union, the Russian Federation, uh, was. Um, has been developed for many years and centuries as uh, you know, actually as a colonial territory. And when uh, some uh, quite bright researchers in the 19th century Russia uh, uh, said that Siberia is uh, a kind of a colony, uh, I would say that, we are, that they were absolutely right on insisting this, because if one looks on what the Europeans did uh, in the 19th century, in the 17th, 18th, 18th centuries, and what the Russians did at the same time. Uh, their um, uh, adventures were maybe not completely the same, but I think it was very, very similar. Uh, when uh, the Englishmen uh, went to North America and the Spaniards went to South America, colonizing these territories, making the, uh, founding the settlements, expanding and uh, providing a lot of population coming from Europe to the New World, uh, quite the same situation was developed in, uh, has been developed in Russia, when where a lot of people moved uh, to the east. Um, it was not overseas possessions, but it was uh, a part of this great continental empire. The, the people moved to the east and established their uh, settlements and towns, uh, which uh, were populated by Russians, uh, you know, expulsing uh, the local uh, population. And uh, quite, uh, quite soon, the Russians uh, became the dominant ethnic group uh, in Siberia, and uh, the development of this region was, uh, I would like, I would say once again, was uh, going through definitely colonial paths, uh, when um, the development there was uh, uh, was going not so fast as in the center of the, city, of the country, uh, and uh, the main idea of the exploration of the territory was, of course, uh, appropriation of its uh, uh, its natural resources. Uh, Siberia, for many years, was uh, uh, the you know the uh, one of the main sources of uh, the well-being and the riches of Russia. Uh, and even uh, as uh, maybe some people know, even uh, people like Lomonosov in the 18th century said that uh, the uh, power and the wealth of Russia will be multiplied by Siberia and the northern territories. So, but anyway, uh, the development of this territory was uh, at every time secondary question. The first one was uh, how uh, the natural resources may be exploited and appropriated. Uh, I would say that another uh, major point uh, is that uh, from one century to another, the role of Siberia in the Russian economy was actually growing, uh, even if uh, some people wouldn't realize this. Uh, just several numbers. Uh, for example, if one looks on uh, the Russian Empire of the end of, by the end of the 19th century, uh, when it was uh, all, all Russia census of 1897, uh, at that time um, the Siberian territories, which I consider everything which goes eastern to the, uh, from the Ural Mountains, 
from, from the, to, to the Pacific Ocean. Uh, at the time, Alaska was already sold to the United States. So the Siberia, as it is, as, as we know it now, uh, was uh, at the time 52% uh, of the imperial territory uh, because empire was, uh, had included also Finland, Poland, and Central Asian uh, possessions and so on. So Siberia was 52% of the territory, 7.5% of the population, and 19% of exports. So, uh, of course, the internal redistribution of the wealth was quite high, uh, and uh, Siberian uh, regions, uh, they donated a lot of uh, money to the, f uh, to the imperial treasury, but nevertheless, once again, 52% of the territory, 7.5% of population, 19% of exports. Uh, when uh, the perestroika began in 1985, uh, the situation was quite different. Uh, of course, the territorial share expanded a little bit because uh, the Soviet Union was some uh, smaller than the Russian Empire. It was no Finland, no Poland. Uh, and uh, the territorial question was, so the share of the territory was 57%. In population, it was 10.5% because the region was definitely uh, underpopulated. Uh, but as, uh, but in, uh, the share in exports was high up, uh, up to 46% from uh, 19 in the late 19th century. And now, if we look, we will see quite astonishing numbers that Siberia in 2014 consists of 75% of the Russian territory because there is no Central Asia, Ukraine and South Asia, 20.2% uh, of Russian population, twice as much as the Soviet Union, and 76% of exports. So uh, we now got uh, um, a situation when uh, the the settler colony, which Siberia is, uh, actually wasn't is, is now much stronger than the metropolis. So uh, it's a unique uh, situation in the global history. Uh, it's never happened before. Because, uh, for example, if something uh, was close to happen, uh, as it was uh, the situation in early 19th century Portuguese empire, when Brazil uh, appeared to be much stronger and much more populated, much more economically developed than Portugal itself, after the Napoleonic Wars, when the uh, imperial court of Portugal was residing for several years in Rio de Janeiro, uh, so uh, the immediate aftermath was the declar uh, declaration of Brazilian independence and the establishment of the Brazilian empire. Uh, so uh, now we have uh, Russia as uh, as if Brazil never succeeded from Portugal. Uh, so yeah, that's it. Uh, it it's it's roughly the same uh, situation in uh, or United States uh, now consisting of 51 states uh, in their recent in their current borders uh, be uh, the part of uh, of the United Kingdom. So uh, in both cases uh, the. Uh, the balance between the metropolis and the uh, settler colony is really very challenging because uh, the economic the economic uh, might and the economic potential of the eastern territories of Russia is very high. The problem, uh, so uh, this uh, I think is the first point. The second point is that uh, for many years uh, the Russian government, uh, both in St. Petersburg during the imperial times and in Moscow, was lacking the strategy of the developing this, uh, this particular region. I think the best uh, strategy and the best practices which were in place uh, actually were in the last, uh, in, in the late 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, uh, because Siberia for many years and for many decades was considered to be as, uh, a, you know, a, as 
any colony, I would say, was considered to be an area of relative freedom and a lot of liberties, economic freedoms, as well, first of all. Uh, uh, in Siberia, we never had um, uh, the system of serfdom, which was abolished uh, at the territory of metropolitan Russia in 1861. It never existed in Siberia, so therefore uh, it was much more freedom, therefore it was much more economic initiative there. Uh, and uh, during the beginning of the 20th century, um, it was a huge uh, relocation of the population uh, towards the eastern regions. Uh, voluntarily, I, I would say it happened. Uh, and um, the development of uh, Siberian territories after the Trans-Siberian Railway was built in 1904 uh, was, I think, one of the biggest success of uh, Russian uh, economic and um, economic policies that years, uh, of these years. Uh, during the Soviet times, uh, it was, of course, very, uh, there were a lot of efforts to develop Siberian territories, and uh, a lot of industrial enterprises were built there and relocated there during the Great Patriotic War. And after the war, uh, new scientific centers were established. But nevertheless, I would say that um, this development was a development uh, under the planned Soviet economy, and therefore it uh, left a lot of industrial enterprises, industrial objects, uh, which uh, were, you know, necessary and profitable and effective only uh, under this planned economic system, and which uh, turned to be uh, completely ineffective uh, as uh, soon as Russia turned to uh, market economy and to and was I I included into global, uh, into global competition. So therefore, uh, now we have uh, the Siberian economy returning quite fast, returning to its previous character, which was uh, dominated by resource industries. And uh, Siberia is, I think, the center and the vehicle uh, of, uh, uh, of the Russian resource-led economy. Uh, if uh, just to say something about how much uh, Russia depends uh, on uh, its um, uh, energy exports and natural uh, material exports, I would say that uh, even quite recently, Mr. Medvedev yesterday, I would say, uh, said that uh, Russian oil dependence and uh, Russian resource, uh, resource course was uh, first uh, initiated or orchestrated into in, in the Brezhnev era, or even by uh, Mr. Brezhnev himself. But I would say that uh, in that times, Russia was not so dependent on energy exports as now. It was dependent much, much less. If one looks on uh, the exports of uh, the Soviet Union in back in 1986, uh, only 18% of oil which were extracted, which were produced in the Soviet Union, was exported, actually. Now the share for Russia stays at 66% of all oil which is produced, uh, and only one-third of, uh, of this resource is consumed uh, inside the country because of complete deterioration of the industrial sector. So now um, what we have, uh, we have uh, Siberia as a one of the biggest, uh, I would say, uh, once again, engines of um, uh, Russian growth. Uh, Siberia contributes around 53% uh, of uh, all the incomes of all the allocations for the federal government budget. Uh, of course, uh, both the, the ta uh, so uh, uh, taxes associated with oil and gas 
which are the tax for uh, development of natural resource reservoirs, uh, first of all, and then the uh, custom duties for exports and oil and gas. Uh, they comprise around 49% of the federal, federal budget, and uh, by 95% they, they have Sib Siberian nature. Uh, so uh, anyway, I, I would like to say that uh, now Siberia came back, or comes, uh, is coming back to the status of resource province of Russia uh, without uh, any strategy for uh, securing its uh, relatively serious place uh, in, in the Russian economy. What uh, the federal government is, uh, what is, uh, federal, what does federal government propose these days? Uh, the major, uh, you know, attitude is um, driven to, towards the Far East. So the topic uh, for many, uh, maybe for 10 years so far, was uh, changed from the development of Siberia itself, because uh, I think uh, everybody in the government is uh, a little somehow uh, uh, thinks that the development here is okay because you have uh, large oil and gas fields in uh, Western Siberia, you have a lot of mineral resource base in Eastern Siberia, you have a lot of, uh, you know, uh, even uh, cultural and uh, intellectual and um, uh, scientific centers in Siberia, in Novosibirsk, in Tomsk, in Irkutsk, in some other regions. So actually uh, the development of this part of the country is uh, considered to be uh, quite successful. Uh, but the problem uh, now, the focus is now shifted, uh, has been shifted to the, uh, to the Far East. Uh, and here what we see, it's, uh, I think, uh, maybe not a complete failure, but something quite close to it. Because uh, for uh, seven years uh, now of the policy of so-called opening, of uh, uh, establishing new uh, free economic zones, or special economic zones in the Far East, Really, no industrial, no, there is no in increase in industrial production. Uh, the government invests uh, in several projects which I will think will never pay off. Uh, of course, everybody witnessed uh, the, build, uh, the big construction in uh, Vladivostok during the preparations to the APEC meeting in 2010. Uh, so, 2012, no, maybe 2000. Uh, I think it, it will 12, yeah. Uh, so uh, another point was uh, uh, and is a huge construction effort to build another uh, space launching site, space uh, rockets, uh, space missiles launching site, which is called Vostochny in Khabarovsky uh, Krai, uh, valued at around 10 plus billion dollars to be built uh, and now falling uh, out of schedule. Uh, behind of schedule, uh, the next uh, big project is to. Uh, build uh, an extension or to modernize the Trans-Siberian Railway and the Baikal-Amur uh, Railway, which was built in the Soviet time. So uh, the government proposes a plan to develop the region via, uh, through special uh, economic zones and through uh, investing into huge uh, infrastructure projects. But I would say that everything here is principle not calculated, because uh, if one seriously believes in the developing of um, Eurasian Union, where Kazakhstan is uh, or considers to be one of the principal uh, allies of Russia, I think, I think it's quite uh, unusual and uh, counterproductive just to take this space launching site from Baikonur to Vostochny, uh, because the cost of building this new, uh, new site will exceed the annual payment to Kazakh. Kazakhstan for uh, staying in Baikonur, it exceeds it by 115 times. 
So uh, you will have to pay the Kazakhs 115 years, and then you will get the cost which Postochny will cost you for uh, constructing this new launching site. To build a new railway is also challenging, but the problem is that uh, now around 60%, 55 roughly saying, 55% of all goods by volume transported from west to east via the Trans-Siberian Railway and BAM uh, is uh, actually uh, the two commodities, which are the iron ore and, and coal. So uh, both um, uh, being moved to the eastern ports and then uh, to exp uh, for export to South Korea and Japan. So if you just commission um, you know, a state-of-the-art uh, metal processing plant from the same uh, South Koreans, put them somewhere in uh, Buretia, in Ulanude or near Irkutsk, you can just put all the coal and iron ore there, process it uh, them, and you will have, by at maximum levels, it may cost around $4 billion to construct this plant, and you will utilize all the goods you are moving uh, by the uh, railway to the east, uh, and the turnover of the railway will come down at four, by half at least. Uh, instead of this, uh, Mr. Yukunin and the Russian Railways wanted to build another uh, line of this railway for approximately, before the devaluation of the ruble, uh, it was in dollar terms around $26 billion, so six, seven times more expensive, was a project uh, just to expand the capacity and to move more coal and iron ore to, to, to the east. So nevertheless, I, I would say that uh, we, will go in, in, we may go into bigger detail later, but uh, my point is that if you want to develop this region, you should really opt for the uh, free market uh, scenario, uh, just allow to uh, people and enterprises and companies there to get much more uh, uh, economic freedoms than they have, than they can get uh, in the central Russia. You should diversify all the standards and technical requirements because, uh, for example, if you have some requirements for building houses in the European part of the country and to use land there, for example, you cannot uh, use um, uh, the woods, uh, the woodlands uh, for residential building. So why you cannot do this in Siberia where you have much more open space and much more resources just to accommodate uh, the population and uh, give uh, the people some stimulus not to leave. Uh, uh, this region and to move to the central Russia. So uh, my idea, uh, I will, I may explain it uh, in more detail, is just look, uh, this territory was for centuries development as a settler colony, so just provide it with all the possibilities of the colonized territory in, uh, in uh, means of economic freedoms and uh, the freedom of private initiative. The next point is, of course, that uh, as uh, many people uh, argued, have argued, uh, and of course uh, this famous book by Cliff Gady about the uh, Siberian curse also uh, was uh, in, in this trend, uh, that uh, Siberia has a very big problem with the territory, with the code, uh, and uh, with accessibility of uh, its resources. And everything is right. So, so uh, the development, if, if the state develops this region, it will be, it, n this development never will become as effective as uh, the development, for example, in other uh, regions of Russia. It will be much more costly. So the overall cost of the production there will be enormously high. And uh, if uh, 
the competition uh, becomes harder and more intense, uh, definitely the Siberian uh, companies, the Siberian industries will be hurt first. But uh, I would say that this is not completely true my, from my point of view, because you just should, you know, uh, rethink uh, the very idea of investment there. So uh, the uh, Soviet and now Russian uh, strategy uh, is based predominantly on big, huge-scale projects, uh, railways, bridges, uh, tunnels, uh, big factories, and so on, while uh, the, the, the best way to develop the region is, uh, on my point of view, uh, is uh, associated with um, so producing development in special zones and points, uh, which uh, is uh, the feature of, for example, uh, the same kind of development in Northern Territories in Canada or in Alaska here in the United States. So just not to build uh, these big projects, not to try to take the railway to uh, Chukotka, uh, because in the same Alaska you just have one Trans-Alaskan Railway, it's quite enough. Uh, just it's much better to develop the airport structure, to develop the uh, seaports uh, during the Pacific Coast and so on, uh, because uh, it, will be it will cost much less uh, and it will definitely uh, profit uh, the local population much, uh, much more. So um, uh, for me, I would say once again, for me, uh, the development of Siberia may be successful this year only if it is uh, based on private resources, on private initiative, uh, on uh, coming uh, of uh, foreign enterprises, foreign companies there, because, uh, but, but nothing of this, I think, will happen because, uh, because uh, the government is now uh, really attached to big-scale projects. We now see uh, the Chinese uh, the contact with China on gas issues, so therefore it will be Gazprom who will get uh, much more uh, powers in Siberia to develop these new gas fields. I do not know how successful this development may be, but nevertheless. Uh, and uh, so the, gov uh, the government in Moscow will rely uh, even, even more than it relied before uh, on the state-owned uh, companies, uh, the state-controlled <coughs> investments, and uh, therefore I think we will not uh, have any uh, considerable market reforms in Siberia because for me uh, it, it may be quite natural when you have the European part of Russia with all these you know, state monopolies and something like this and when you have this newly uh, new territory which, which should be developed uh, and therefore if you want to develop it you uh, turn it into some kind of huge uh, you know uh, maybe not offshore zone but a huge territory where there are much lower taxes, uh, where there are much lower income taxes, and you can just enjoy the results of your commercial activity. For uh, I will just uh, come up to with um, the idea of uh, turn to the east, uh, as it is now uh, considered in Russia. I think that uh, this turn, uh, some people they say that it is against the Russian interest, it's counterproductive, uh, it's a Chinese trap or something like this. I will never say this uh, because my point is here is that uh, if you want to go east or if you want to cooperate with China more closely, you can easily do it. Uh, it will not bring you some additional big profits, but I cannot see how it can uh, endanger or how it can... Um, undermine the Russian economy. So there is no much benefits 
but uh, I, I would not say that there is much challenges in this case because the Chinese, uh, as uh, I can look on what is happening in China and what are the strategies, the Chinese are simply not very interested in doing something with Russia these days because there were several projects announced between Russia and China in recent years and no one actually succeeded. Uh, uh, the Chinese were invited two years ago into some huge uh, infrastructure projects in Russia, for example, the Moscow Metro, uh, the new kind of residential and um, office construction in the new territories which were adjacent to Moscow. Uh, two years ago, uh, they were welcomed uh, in building uh, a new Silk Road uh, from Kazakhstan via Russian territory and Belarus to Europe, a big uh, automobile road there. Uh, they were also persuaded to uh, to take part in uh, the development of Northern Sea Route. Uh, it was in 2009 a huge, a big, big uh, deal was concluded between Russia and China on the development of the uh, territories close to the borders, those close to Russian-Chinese border. N nothing succeeded actually because. Uh, uh, of this, uh, the current devaluation of the ruble shut down the project of Moscow Metro development. Uh, and uh, so uh, the uh, cooperation, which was proclaimed by the Treaty of 2009 uh, near, near the border, went so far that uh, on the Russian side of the border, only natural resources were exploited and all the industrial capacities, all the industrial facilities were built on the Chinese side. So also Russia doesn't have any, any big uh, benefits from it. Uh, the idea of new Silk Road was abandoned because nothing was done actually from the Russian side. And now the Chinese are uh, thinking about, not even thinking, they just adopt a strategy of building two uh, of these Silk Roads, which one they call Maritime Silk Road of the 21st century, which should unite. Uh, some big ports, oceanic ports uh, on the uh, Indian Ocean coastline uh, from Gwadar in Pakistan to ports in Bangladesh and uh, Sri Lanka and B uh, Myanmar. Another uh, way will, will, uh, will take uh, the truck cargoes from Xinjiang uh, to Kazakhstan, then to Uzbekistan and Turkmenia. Uh, and then will Iran and Turkey to Europe by the southern uh, pathway. So, uh, therefore, I uh, really cannot understand what uh, can be the big benefits of uh, Russian-Chinese cooperation, what the, the, the backbone of this cooperation may be. Uh, the gas deals uh, are... Uh, we c one cannot evaluate them precisely because uh, no one knows exactly what the price is, uh, and no one uh, knows how this uh, current decline in oil prices will affect the gas uh, tariffs there. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I think that this project is for Russia at least not bad, I would say, because uh, European Union uh, this year bought uh, 18 billion uh, less. Uh, 18 billion cubic meters of less of Russian gas than in 2013. Uh, and everything that happens uh, around Ukraine, uh, I think, will put a pressure to the Europe on the European Union to decrease uh, further shipments, uh, the shipments even further in, in coming years. Uh, the Europeans now have a lot of possibilities to avoid dealing with gas from at all. So if you look on the map of the European Union, you will see that they have 100, they have the 
capacity for regasification capacities for LNG uh, just in operation uh, by 183 billion cubic meters per year. Uh, while in 2013, uh, the import of LNG into European Union was just a little bit less than 40 billion cubic meters. So they have 140 billion cubic meters of gas, uh, free, uh, not utilized capacity of LNG regasification. Therefore, it's, it's more than gas from supplied in Europe, uh, to Europe in 2014. The final figure will be around 118. Uh, billion cubic uh, meters of gas. So therefore, uh, facing, faced with these uh, difficulties in Ukrainian question with the possible disruption of, of supply, I think the Europeans will go further uh, relying on LNG, uh, developing new uh, gas fields in Algeria and uh, Libya um, in exchange, uh, which should uh, you know, uh, come in place because the old ones are now, have been exhausted. Uh, also, they have uh, alternatives uh, with um, gas from uh, Israel offshore deposits in in Mediterranean and, and some other alternatives as well. So, therefore, I think uh, the move for Russia to switch some uh, kind of some uh, portion of the gas exports to China, uh, it's a rather defensive move, uh, but it will change nothing uh, in the in uh, relationship between Russia and China. Uh, uh, Russia will never, uh, China will never contribute to industrialization of Russia because it is interested predominantly in uh, its own industrial development based uh, somehow on Russian resources. Russia will, uh, China will never consider Russia as a nuclear partner. And I think this is a big problem because uh, for Mr. Putin now, uh, turn to China uh, somehow uh, is considered uh, as a turn to equal partner from United States and Europe, who, uh, from the point of Mr. Putin, are now, you know, trying to dictate their uh, own uh, policy and their own uh, conditions of cooperation. I think the, Chi the Chinese government will do the same in, in five, ten years from now, and therefore it may be in some kind of disruption in uh, Russian-Chinese relations. But nevertheless, the main point is that the turn to the East uh, is, uh, as I used to say, it's not uh, when, uh, when Putin turns his face uh, to China, it's not because he just, look, uh, for, uh, he just looked for someone to, to look on. It's just because he turned his back to Europe and what he's now facing is China. Uh, so uh, it, it was not a big strategy, I think, uh, behind uh, this move, and there is not as well. Uh, recently he was in India proposing new arms deals, uh, new deals in energy. Uh, so he is looking uh, where to go next uh, after this big conflict between Russia on one side and uh, U.S. and uh, European Union on the other side. But my. I'm completely sure that uh, the potential of this cooperation will exhaust uh, quite soon, because uh, you should and, uh, one should uh, take into consideration that the share of industrial products in Russian export to China is even less than in Russia's export to Europe. So uh, it's not about you know turning Russia from this um, uh, natural resource. Uh, uh, supplier to Europe to something else vis-a-vis -vis China. No, for China, Russia is the same natural resource supplier as it was for Europe for decades. So therefore, I, I, I will maybe end in uh, this case saying uh, just a couple of uh, words about, you know, this Eastern or Pacific 
uh, turn. Because from, from f to, for me, uh, if one uh, says about, one talks about turn to China or to India, it's actually not the turn to the east. It's a turn to the south. Uh, to the south, to the, uh, you know, this heartland, histori historical heartland, the midst of Eurasian, Eurasia, and then to the continental uh, land masses in, in, in both Sinzan and India, which I believe is completely uh, uh, counterproductive because Russia goes more and more deeply into these continental, uh, continental territories, which uh, if one takes into uh, account uh, the um, current economic trends in the world, which are really, to, to possession of which is really counterproductive because more than 68% of all global GDP is now produced at the coastal territories, at the territories which are uh, less than 100 nautic miles from the ocean coasts. And uh, now, now the transport, uh, international transport, is a predominantly maritime one. It's around 74% of glo global trade conducted by uh, global logistics conducted by uh, the, the maritime trade, uh, trade while uh, the uh, railways, the, uh, the significance is uh, obviously decreasing. So uh, Russia now just wants to reestablish some kind of his uh, geopolitical uh, ambitions and goes not to the east, but rather to the south, which I think is geopolitical mistake because you, get, you will get some territories which which value is really close to zero. Uh, while real turn to the east, if it, if it were to happen, uh, may include much bigger cooperation with uh, both the United States and other Western nations, because the real east for Russia is actually the natural west, because to the east of Vladivostok lies uh, Japan, to the east of Magadan lies Alaska and uh, Canada, and globally to the east of uh, Russia in Pacific lies uh, California and Oregon. So therefore, I think that, uh, that uh, and, and actually uh, those nations like uh, United States and like American nation in Alaska uh, and Canadians in Northern Territories, they have much, much more experience uh, which uh, might be useful for reconstruction of the Siberian um, economy and Siberian subcontinent as well, just because uh, the Chinese never uh, experienced, you know, uh, a huge exploration in the, in the north, in the north, in the Arctic. Uh, they never uh, encountered the situation with this, such a big and sporadically inhabited territories. So therefore, I think that uh, if Russia wants really to develop Siberia, it should do it on the free market basis, uh, on the market, uh, on the basis of expanding the political and economic liberties in the territory. Uh, and of course, uh, in uh, much closer cooperation uh, with uh, North American countries and Japan and South Korea, but not China, uh, definitely, because uh, all these uh, nations, they possess uh, technologies, capital, uh, um, human resources just to, you know, to, uh, to facilitate the development of the territory while the Chinese uh, they will look on it uh, for many decades to come just as a, on a pool, big pool of natural resources which, which should be uh, effectively uh, used. So therefore, I will finish here. Uh, I would say that uh, I do not expect any kind of progress uh, in uh, coming years to be made in the development of these territories. Uh, I think that... Um, 
it it will not not be you know a big problems with, with them because uh, the outflow of the population is already has already stopped so it's uh, not uh, you know no one would say that uh, the far east will be deserted from people in 10 years no it will not be uh, the same as Siberia as well. Of course, the people are coming and leaving, uh, and uh, but the balance is uh, quite stable. It was not. It is not the same uh, situation that was in place in the in the late 80s and in the 90s. So therefore, uh, I think that uh, the development of Siberia and Far East, someone will definitely happen, but it will not happen before. The Russian government really realizes both the potential of these regions and uh, the necessity of applying quite different, quite you know, uh, special economic policy to uh, these vast territories. Thank you. Thank you, Slava. That was a really interesting and uh, comprehensive uh, pre presentation. A lot of interesting notions there, particularly uh, uh, conceptualizing. Uh, the turn to the east, if the east means China and India, then it would effectively really be a turn to the turn, turn to the south. Um, if I think I will take the prerogative of the chair and make the first uh, comment or question, then open it up to the uh, um, the room. Uh, the the Soviet the Soviet period, as you alluded to. Uh, I mean, really, the development of Siberia in the Far East primarily had actually a, a military strategic focus to it, of course, with the first phase being starting in World War II with the moving of uh, factories uh, and enterprises uh, east of the Urals um, for strategic reasons. And then a second burst coming uh, beginning in the mid-1960s uh, with the Sino-Soviet split and the uh, dramatic militarization of the of the Sino-Soviet border, uh, the eventually stationing of about 500,000 troops uh, in the border region and building of uh, uh, infrastructure to, uh, to support that, that troop presence at, at great cost. Um, along with that, of course, you're right, there's the sort of the gigantomania of uh, building of large enterprises and, uh, and projects there. And I guess I get my comment, and it's sort of kind of, it sort of is a question as well. Um, you know, uh, for years uh, people have complained that well, there's no strategy to de to develop the Siberia and the Far East. Well, maybe beware of what you wish for. <laughs> Better no strategy than a bad strategy, uh, because typically uh, the strategies that have been developed have been. Um, developed by the by the center, and they've been very much in this vein of, you know, building large um, industrial enterprises, large pieces of infrastructure. Now that's the Trans-Siberian, of course, the Tsarist period, I think quite successful. But if we look at the Baikal Amur mainline um, in the 70s and 1980s, I mean, we always regarded that as this big white elephant. I'll return to that in a in a second. And, um, you know, there have been various, you know, iterations of in the Soviet period by leaders talking about plans for the development. Mr. Brezhnev had one. Of course, Mr. Gorbachev had one that he articulated in Vladivostok in 1986. But um, Mr. Gorbachev, the, the content of the plan was never ever to be implemented because the Soviet Union ran out of money and, and collapsed. 
um, and maybe that was a good thing, uh, looking at some of the, uh, the plans that were, <coughs> that were in store, uh, which again were completely on a non-market non -market basis, uh, as you know, the 70 plus years of Soviet development was. And then, um, so but then we, we entered the period of the 1990s where the, uh, the center has, has an, virtually no funds to allocate uh, to the regions for, for development. And so there are not large projects that are, that are developed. And um, I'm wondering if right now, if we're looking at, um, uh, it's possible, of course, that if there is a prolonged period of uh, a low oil price, then the, uh, the funds of the center will be strapped and all of these, you know, $26 billion for Mr. Yukunin, $10 billion for Vastochny, uh, and some of the other large projects that you mentioned, they're, gonna, they're going to go by the wayside and um, perhaps simply sort of kind of the natural course of events will lead to uh, perhaps uh, a more laissez-faire approach uh, to the cent to the to the periphery. I was wondering if you can kind of kind of talk about that and whether there really is a need for a plan of development, or um, are we better off with uh, sort of no plan? And as you're articulating, I think the market market approach. More specifically, I was wondering if you you talked about the. Uh, I remember two years ago we had a very lively debate here about, uh, about modernization of the Trans-Siberian Railroad. Um, uh, and you commented about the Trans-Siberian Railroad. I was wondering if you could con uh, talk about the, uh, whether does the modernization of the Baikal Amur mainline make any sense? In what, what context could that, could that make sense? Um, what, it, what, what would be the justification for that? <laughs> and please just uh, uh, put your hand up and I'll start, I'll start a list. Uh, for the crowd here, okay, thanks. Mm -hmm. Why don't uh, we take a, take another? We'll take another couple of uh, comments and then turn it back. Yes, then turn it back to uh, Dr. Nizemsev. Hi, uh, my name is Mindy Reiser. I had the pleasure of working in Central Asia in the Caucasus over the past twenty years. And we've heard a lot about the decline of the intellectual caliber of higher education in. Russia, and I'm wondering how this impacts these intellectual centers you mentioned. That, of course, would be one way of attracting younger people to come in terms of the demographics and the research. Who is moving to that part of the country, and what are they doing there? Um, I'm Caitlin Antrim. I work primarily on maritime and Arctic issues. And looking at the Russian interior, uh, where east-west railroads are hard to maintain and, and low in capacity, uh, the north-south rivers seem to be a, a development path. The Arctic strategy, the transportation strategy, both emphasize the, the opening of those rivers, uh, building of industry along there. And it seems with transportation access and now natural gas coming from Yamal, that there's a chance to put industry in places where before it was simpler to haul the natural resources off to somewhere else, to, so to increase vertical activity. Uh, and with warming projected another four degrees centigrade in the north, uh, those ports will be much more open. And it seemed like the northern sea route, as much as 
Westerners look at it as going from Japan to Europe. Uh, Russia certainly looks at it as, as opening of its internal markets. And since that's how the United States grows, grew, I'm interested in comments about how opening of that direction could foster Russian development internally. Thanks. Yeah, uh, Jeff Mankoff with CSIS. You talked a little bit about the Russia-China gas deal, um, but I know there's been a lot of interest on the Russian part in particular in um, also developing LNG facilities uh, on the Far East for sales to places like Japan and South Korea um, and the like. And I was just wondering if you could say something a little bit about how realistic those prospects are, um, what the, the obstacles are, and, and whether you foresee that they'll be realized anytime soon. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, I will um, immediately say that uh, I uh, would not answer your question because just because we have uh, a colleague now here from uh, Tomsk University, and I think she will comment on you because the question was directly should, should be directly addressed to the people from the place. Uh, so other uh, uh, questions look like well, the first uh, comment of for Mr. Kachins about. Um, uh, the grand strategies and uh, the development of Siberia in the planned way. Uh, I would say that uh, the problem uh, is not only about Siberia, it's about the regional policy uh, politics in Russia as well. Uh, and uh, what uh, characterizes Mr. Putin's government uh, rule from 2001 till now uh, is that the share of regional budgets uh, inside the budget system was declining uh, quite, quite sharply from 51% in 2002 to a little bit less than 34% now. So uh, the regional budget are deprived, the budgets are deprived from resources uh, and therefore uh, it uh, becomes more and more uh, difficult for the regions to develop their own regional projects. Moreover, I would say, uh, that uh, the problem with the Russian uh, regional strategy, or budget strategy, uh, lies in the very big, you know, disrupt mm, disproportions uh, of, how um, um, to say, allocating funds to different uh, levels of the budgets. Uh, for example, if you take the United States of America, uh, you will see that uh, inside uh, every state in the United States, the, the budget of the cities, of municipalities, consists around, uh, in, in some cases, close to 60% of all the budget of the particular state. In Russia, you have just this, uh, another situation when, for example, in uh, Novosibirsk Oblast, uh, the Novosibirsk, which is the biggest city, uh, has a budget uh, of around less than one-third of the budget of Novosibirsk Oblast, uh, while uh, it possesses more than half of the population of, 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 of this territory. Uh, so. Uh, in Russia, you uh, just have the vertical of uh, power, both uh, from Moscow to territories and inside every territory as well. Therefore, uh, the, mm, the possibility of developing uh, really competitive projects uh, inside the big cities uh, and uh, to cooperate with uh, uh, you know, the different, uh, the different uh, territories. Uh, these possibilities are quite limited because uh, everything you got uh, you get in the territories is distributed via the governor uh, who 
as much as the people in Moscow are interested in big uh, national nation, nationwide projects, the governor is better interested in uh, big projects uh, inside uh, his territory. Uh, not about, uh, not on, um, not uh, allowing uh, private businesses to to, to develop there. Uh, uh, BAM and uh, Trans-Siberian, which was also a question, uh, what, what was particular, can you remind, it was the effectiveness of what it was? I just wanted you to, to, to you talk a bit about Trans-Siberian in the yeah. presentation, but uh, the question of the modernization of BAM. Uh, look, uh, the question of modernization of BAM is very, uh, I, I would say, controversial, uh, first of all, because the BAM is a railway which is really predestined for moving the very low-priced, uh, low-value uh, kind of resources. Uh, if you look on the transit, if you look on the container, um, uh, you know, container logistics, around 85% of all containers moving from east to west and from west to east inside Siberia are moving by Trans-Siberian, by the uh, southern route. BAM is exclusively used for uh, for transporting the natural resources, uh, not not process at all. So, uh, but now uh, everyone in Moscow is saying that we want to expand uh, all these railways uh, as a transit route, but nevertheless, around 65% of all funding goes to BAM, but not to Trans-Siberian. So uh, it, it's it's quite strange, uh, you know, choice because you are. Con uh, consciously uh, developing the route which is which never will be used for uh, container shipping because there are no facilities there there are no railway stations there are not sorting stations uh, for uh, you know uh, processing this um, uh, container um, container traffic so I think that uh, the effectiveness uh, look at the same time you, you one should uh, understand that um, the effectiveness of the Russian railways is actually very, very low. Uh, if uh, you take uh, the annual reports of uh, Russian railways and compare it with the Deutsche Bahn or CNCF uh, or other European um, uh, rail companies, you will see that uh, the earnings per employee are approximately 4.5 uh, times less uh, in Russia than they are uh, in, in, in European companies. So, uh, but, but the tariff uh, is uh, maybe up to 90% of, of the European one. So I think that uh, all these big projects uh, in the infrastructure in Siberia are completely non, they cannot be uh, really effective. If you want to ship uh, some goods from Vladivostok uh, not to St. Petersburg, it's much cheaper to do it by sea. Uh, and uh, it's it's really very very much cheaper. And moreover, I would say that the uh, maritime routes are becoming more and more effective. Uh, it was a very interesting publication, The Economist, this summer, uh, uh, on the release of a report of uh, World Maritime Organization, uh, which uh, was uh, devoted to uh, the fuel efficiency in the global maritime transport. And it was very interesting uh, idea proposed that if uh, you reduce uh, the speed of uh, transportation by sea uh, by around 30 percent, uh, you will economize twice on fuel uh, on, on 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 the amount of fuel you use. So therefore, I think that it's not about to be very fast. If you are you know producing a lot of 
tele, uh, you know, TVs or uh, mobile phones or industrial equipment in China and then moving into Europe, it doesn't matter how fast it comes there, in two weeks or in two months. It just should come on time uh, when, when, when the shops and uh, 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 all the infrastructure is uh, ready for taking, up, uh, for taking in a new portion of these goods. But uh, Russians are saying that we can do it faster, but why one need uh, to, to transport this uh, kind of stuff faster uh, when it is unpredictable, it, it, no one can predict when it will be shipped and delivered to, to the final point because no one can predict uh, the jams on the Russian railways and uh, how the goods were handled, uh, will be handled there. So uh, my point is this uh, bomb and uh, Trans-Siberia will never, never arise as a uh, reliable uh, transit uh, route for transit. Uh, also, I, I should say that the amount of goods transported are really, you know, you cannot compare them uh, with those going by sea because uh, the current capacity for Trans-Siberian for both ways is around 80 to 84 uh, million tons per year. Uh, even after the extension, if it is successful, uh, it, uh, the capacity may increase up to 125 million tons per year. If you consider the transit, no, you can put 15% of all the capacity for transit needs. So it may be maximum 20 million tons per year of goods going in transit from Vladivostok or from South Korea to Europe. Uh, if one compares it uh, with the southern route, with um, uh, maritime silk road, as the Chinese used to say, uh, just uh, the Suez Canal uh, channel is, uh, operates 980 millions, uh, million tons of cargo per year. So uh, Russian uh, pass will be less than 2% uh, of all uh, maritime transportation in the East, so it will never become a market maker. Uh, the same, and I, I am now going to the next question, the same is about the Northern Sea Route, uh, which was uh, uh, for many years uh, you know, advertised in Russia as a, may, uh, as a potential big uh, transit route in the North. I think it may never happen, uh, but uh, I, I completely agree with what you said about uh, the Northern Route as a very important Russian national uh, element of national transport infrastructure because, of course, uh, there is a kind of warming there, uh, temperatures are rising, the um, Arctic ice is melting. So therefore, it may be very uh, effective to move some goods uh, by the big Siberian rivers uh, to the northern ports and then to transport it, to ship it to Murmansk or to Arhangelsk, to the, con uh, to the European part of the country. It's definitely one of the cheapest and most reliable options. Uh, but nevertheless, you, uh, the northern sea route cannot comp compete with uh, uh, the Indian Ocean uh, in moving a lot of uh, industrial goods from Asia to Europe. For different, for, for several reasons. First of all, uh, it's much more expensive. It may be uh, better if you shouldn't uh, pay for uh, icebreaker escorts, but uh, nevertheless, uh, you, you cannot, you, you cannot pay for them. Only three or four months per year. So uh, otherwise, you should uh, add some, some big costs for, for transportation. Another point is that uh, there is quite 
small uh, traffic between, for example, northern Japan and northern Europe, uh, the majority of goods uh, going uh, there and there originate from southern China, from uh, Shenzhen, from Guangzhou, uh, from uh, Singapore and uh, these territories. And to move the goods, for example, from Singapore, Vietnam, to Hamburg uh, via Indian Ocean, it's a little maybe 10-15% uh, bigger distance than uh, if you turn north. Uh, we explored uh, all these topics uh, making, uh, while making a big report on behalf of um, FESCO company, which is Far Eastern Shipping Company. Uh, and I would say uh, the result was very, you know, uh, it was a surprise uh, to us. Uh, the only one uh, line which can profitably be, uh, which can be profitable uh, operated uh, via the Northern Sea Route uh, is the line between Seattle uh, slash Vancouver and Northern Europe. Because in this case, you should either go this way, which really is quite short, or you should move your goods through the uh, uh, canal of Panama, uh, which uh, adds around uh, 6,000 nautic miles uh, for the distance. So therefore, uh, this is interesting option, but the, over, uh, the overall turnover is quite small. So uh, my point is that uh, neither uh, Trans-Siberia nor the Northern uh, Sea Route will never emerge as competitors to, to, to the uh, Suez Canal. Uh, and this uh, big uh, sea route uh, in the south. Uh, the last question was about LNG in the Far East. Uh, uh, of course, it's a very promising development. Uh, Russia now exports in the form of LNG around 8.9% uh, of the gas it sells uh, abroad. Uh, but um, one should remember that uh, the LNG in the Far East was the result of uh, uh, actually, of, uh, of the Western development, we, uh, the, the plants uh, which uh, produce LNG in Sakhalin were constructed by a shell company, by um, uh, uh, so Shell, uh, and some um, uh, Japanese uh, counterparts. So uh, this project is well maybe expanded uh, if the Russians will maybe renegotiate conditions, and because there are a lot of possibilities to uh, to. Uh, to develop uh, this project in Sakhalin. But uh, another big project, which is called Vladivostok LNG, is actually suspended because the Russians uh, tried to uh, use uh, their uh, domestic technology there, uh, and Gazprom wanted to invest uh, around uh, $4 billion in this big project. Uh, but uh, for doing it, uh, they... Sh they uh, where to have uh, a pipeline from Sakhalin to Vladivostok, a big gas pipeline, uh, which actually, I don't remember what was the announced price. It was also six plus billion dollars, so it was very expensive. And uh, now it's completely abandoned. So I think that uh, the extension of LNG in the Far East may go only uh, if uh, the cooperation between Shell uh, the Japanese and the Russians will endure uh, and, and develop. Uh, but now, uh, I think it's quite, uh, the probability of this is not very high. So, uh, my point will be that uh, Russia will become more accustomed to supplying LNG uh, to the Asian markets, but uh, I'm, I will doubt that uh, the expansion of this project will come soon. But Russia now is a player 
uh, in the local market, definitely, which it wasn't uh, six, seven years ago. But uh, I do not expect the share to go. Uh, actually, uh, the LNG market is really very interesting development, and uh, on the uh, Asian markets, uh, it will be much in more intense competition when the Australians uh, came to the market in uh, early 2017, uh, as they proposed, and the Indonesians are quite uh, actively expanding the LNG capacity because the uh, price difference between LNG in Asia, Asia and uh, LNG in Europe is, you know, really astonishing. It's uh, LNG is in, in Asia costs, uh, I think, seven times um, more these days than uh, uh, natural gas at Henry Hub. So therefore, uh, the market is very, uh, it, it's, uh, very attractive, and I think the competition there will, incre will uh, increase. Okay, so maybe about... Let's, let's turn to uh, our, our guest from uh, Tom yeah, yeah, to address the moment. question about the research communities in, uh, in Siberia. Please uh, introduce yourself for our... Okay, so my name is Yola Zhko. I'm from Tomsk State University. I'm doing my master's degree there. And um, the first point that I want to argue is the statement about uh, education decline. Um, maybe in Russia on the whole, but uh, I would argue in, uh, w within Siberia. Um, the simple fact, um, the, uh, the State University, uh, I mean, St. Petersburg State University uh, has just one Jean Monnet professor, while the Tom State University has three of them. Uh, as for me, it is um, the fact that is uh, that looks very sound. Uh, and um, the problem here, as I see it, uh, is that Siberian universities are not so uh, maybe politicized, and uh, we can uh, see the, pr uh, the problems and uh, some um, pro uh, some international processes as um, more objective uh, than uh, the same universities in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Uh, the other problem is that uh, Siberian universities uh, don't have uh, many connections and many uh, and uh, many um, finance uh, for. Uh, uh, from Euro uh, from European or American side, uh, that is why uh, we are obliged uh, to find some funds and connections uh, with uh, American and uh, and European universities, uh, while Moscow and Saint Petersburg universities don't have uh, such a problem. Uh, they they have their brand uh, and. Uh, this brand actually is uh, now uh, is uh, the, the oh my god <laughs> is reducing yeah uh, so <clears throat> uh, the other fact is that for example Tom's, uh, Tomsk Polytechnic, uh, Polytechnical University prepare one of the best IT specialist engineers uh, and um, uh, and uh, those uh, who are engaged in physics uh, and uh, as for me it is also uh, very it looks very sound uh, it was speak about those uh, who come to Siberia uh, most of them are migrants and migrants from Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan uh, also there is a certain share of uh, of Kyrgyz uh, that uh, come there they are more uh, in comparison uh, with the uh, Russians uh, 
that live in Siberia, they, uh, they prefer to move to Moscow and St. Petersburg because of infrastructure, because of uh, uh, more chances uh, to be well paired and uh, well paired and uh, to have a possibility to move uh, somewhere, uh, somewhere else, uh, mostly to, uh, to the West. Uh, but those who come, they are more active, not only in science, but also uh, in those who run business. Uh, and um, influx uh, of uh, Kazakh migrants, to t because I'm from Tomsk State University, I mostly uh, speak about this university. The influx of uh, Kazakh um, and uh, those who come from Kazakhstan, it's also Russians uh, and uh, some Ukrainians, they are more prepared um, for some problems that they uh, face in Russia. First of all, it concerns to some um, paper problems like uh, citizenship and so on. Uh, but uh, it, it could be a problem, but on the other hand, uh, it is the fact that push them uh, to be more active and to, uh, and to have more insensitive uh, to run their business, uh, to run their enterprises, and um, to promote uh, some Siberian brand. Uh, so maybe <laughs> that's all that I can speak about this problem. Thanks. Say uh, to three words about this because my personal experience uh, when I'm well, lecturing many times in uh, different, but uh, I'm an economist and a political scientist. So while lecturing in uh, different universities and uh, institutes all over the country, I would say that the people uh, east to the Euro, from the Urals are. It's, it may sound very strange, but they are much more pro-European. In, in their beliefs and their ha habits uh, than the people, for example, from the oblasts around Moscow. Because uh, for those who are living in uh, Khabarovsk or Irkutsk, it's, uh, you know, you cannot explain the, them that they are Eurasians, for example, because they understand that they are Europeans and the Asians are on the different side of the river in China. So uh, the uh, European and Russian identity, uh, Western identity, I would say, uh, is much stronger in Siberia than elsewhere in the country. And therefore, I think it's also maybe used for uh, pushing Siberia in the, you know, more westernized direction uh, into more market-oriented economy and more uh, feeling for democracy and so on. So is a much less imperial uh, obsession there and much more pro-European pro feelings. Thanks. I had, I had the pleasure to, uh, to visit uh, Tom's State University about, uh, about 20 years ago a little bit before you were a student there, Yulia. And, uh, and of course, uh, Tomsk has a very distinguished uh, and unique history. I think the first uh, university established in, in, in Siberia, certainly I think the most distinguished history of, of uh, Siberian universities. And for any of us in this, who kind of cut our teeth in the Sovietological community, um, you know, the 1970s and the 1980s, we're well familiar with the, uh, uh, the very the excellent work done in the Novosibirsk around Akadem Garadok, in a particular, uh, uh, the work of, uh, I remember that the, the, uh, the, Novos, the Novosibirsk report done by, uh, led by Tatiana Zaslavskaya, uh, soci sociologist, econ economist who led this team who wrote, I think in 1983, 82, uh, a, a very, very, very 
accurate uh, and um, uh, I mean, really truthful and revealing report about the inefficiencies and problems in the Soviet economy uh, that uh, was quite quite noted. Um, that's very interesting comments. Okay, let me get, let's go to the next round of uh, comments and questions. I see Steve Benson there, and yes, and two on this side. And we'll, yeah, okay. Yes, uh, Vladislav, thank you for your presentation. Um, no, I'm Steve. Retired naval logistician. I'm Steve Benson, and I uh, am an associate here at CSIS. I'm also in the defense industry, and uh, and I also took part in making a feature-length film in 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 Russia. So my question is: uh, If you go west west of the Urals, east of the Urals, um, is there a difference in the climate when it comes to rule of law for business operations, for business, for 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 being able to do business? Um, is it more open? Is it less open? There was, a, there was a term by the folks that made the movie in, in Moscow. We, they called it the land of unlimited freedom. Uh, clearly it wasn't that, but recently it's cracked down. What's the, what's the uh, environment for business in, in terms of rule of law? Thanks. Kyle Scott from the uh, German Marshall Fund. Um, here in the West, we've focused a lot on the, the, the falling price of, of energy and the implications for the Russian federal budget. But can you talk a little bit about what the implications are for the regional economy of Siberia um, of the, the fallen oil prices? I'm Igor Zinsky. I work for ATK. It is an uh, aerospace defense company. And... Uh, Okay. <clears throat> Igor Zhensky, I worked for ATK for 20 years, you know, at their space defense company. And we were working really for, you know, a long time with uh, some of Siberian, you know, just uh, so similar uh, uh, entities. For example, MIAS, you know, just McCabe Design Bureau with uh, uh, Krasnoyarsk Machine Building Plant, uh, with uh, Mayak and so forth, the 90s and so on. And uh, we had some, you know, interactions with these people for just for the time being, for a long time. Um, I would like to say, first of all, you know, I would question your uh, statement that, you know, uh, enterprises and capabilities which were developed in Soviet times, they just lacked, lacking their competit competitiveness in, in the world market. Uh, I would say it's uh, completely untrue, okay, or BISC or... For example, all these people, they have tremendous intellectual, first of all, capabilities, a lot of young people who are working really very, very fine. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, talking about huge Siberia, which is bigger than all the United States, you know, by territory, it's very difficult to expect that people, all the people who are there, they just will be working, you know, as, uh, as, as well as, you know, in uh, people in, in the West, for example, this type of thing. So, uh, and uh, we were working recently with Novosibirsk chemi chemists, you know, just chemi people in who are just, I mean, top-notch people in catal catalytic chemistry. So uh, there, is a, there are resources which are really based upon, uh, you know, capabilities developed in uh, in, in Soviet times, which can be really adjusted and leveraged and used in the future. And by the way, this young lady from Tomsk University, 
I have some connection with Tomsk University as well. You know, there are a lot of young and very capable people as well. So this is my first point. I, I would like your comment on that. Uh, and the second point is, you know, I, uh, I understand that, you know, your point that uh, probably Siberia is, should be abandoned, you know, and so on, something like that. But uh, uh, it's probably politically correct, you know, just a uh, statement for this particular audience. But uh, uh, my point is, uh, uh, you know, what is uh, really just a I mean, constructive uh, idea of, of your strategy? Because, frankly speaking, uh, you know, I do not see any other way for development of the territory but for development of infrastructure. This is what, you know, this young lady was talking about, for example. Uh, without infrastructure, without, you know, just, I mean, routes and uh, roads and, uh, you know, infrastructure for good living, nothing will ever happen with the territory. And uh, frankly speaking, you know, if you imagine, for example, like, you know, island by island development, development with uh, aircraft, with uh, airports and so on, it's very difficult to imagine how, for example, natural resources like ores or coal would be transported by aircraft, you know, back and forth. It's very, very strange concept, okay? So I would appreciate if you kind of, you know, outline what is, what is your approach because there is no example, no any precedent in the history, you know, by any country when market forces developed large-scale infrastructure you know, just a man, infrastructure, okay? Thanks. Paul, Paul Schwartz at CSIS. Um, I actually um, will defer because I think he took my question. So. <laughs> Nick. My name is Nick Wondra from the U.S. Department of Energy. Thank you for your comments today. Uh, you mentioned that the share of regional budgets compared to the federal budget in Siberia has shrunk since Putin was first president until the present day. If I sit in a regional legislature in Russia's Far East, has, has anything changed, the process of budgeting? Do I have more freedom, less freedom in structuring the budget, collecting revenue, or anything like this? Last year, Putin spoke to the Federal Assembly, and he said, I want more budgetary freedom for the oblasts. How is this going? Okay, and I think last question, comment, because we need uh, to give our speaker time to make some concluding remarks. Yes? Or do you both want to make comments? Okay, well, last two comments. That's really it. <laughs> Um, Lee Avershov, International Consulting. I work in the area of uh, energy logistics. Uh, coming back to what was said at the beginning and then in the center of the lecture, and thank you, uh, tie in between uh, situation in Ukraine and uh, situation with gas exports both, both to the east and to the west. Uh, would you comment on the situation uh, uh, one of the major uh, potential gas finds, of course, was the Prikerchinsk uh, gas deposits uh, east of uh, Crimea, which was immediately claimed after Crimea succession, uh, I'm sorry, secession and exception into the Russian Federation. Uh, having said that, uh, because of the situation, of course, no international uh, company would invest in further development of that field now. Uh, 
Gazprom expressed some of the interest, uh, Rosneft expressed some of the interest in developing that field, but uh, in the present climate, in the present situation, do you feel that they will commit the resources, or do you think they will concentrate on Siberian development and looking to the east? Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the time today. My name is Kip Knutson. I work for the uh, governor of the state of Alaska. And uh, Alaskans have a lot of uh, probably commonality with Siberians, I suspect, so, especially in their relationship to the federal governments. Um, the uh, question I wanted to ask is, uh, although you're an economist, do you spend any time listening to the voices of Siberians, uh, and in particular indigenous peoples? What are they, what are they seeking in life? Okay, uh, so um, uh, we'll go uh, on this question. First of all, it was a question about the rule of law and the uh, capacities for doing business in Siberia. I would say uh, that they are definitely not better than in Russia itself, in, in, in European Russia, because uh, the quality of uh, the, um, you know, the, the quality of uh, the laws and uh, the law-abiding practices are quite the same. Uh, but I would say that um, the problem with um, local budgets, they force the local governments, uh, the local authorities, just to press businesses even more harder than in Moscow, for example. So therefore, I would say that uh, uh, there is no any positive uh, or additional potential for businesses to develop there. The, the situation is quite actually not better than in, in the central Russia as well. Uh, the second uh, question was about the price of oil. Very good question. I would say that the problem here is that uh, actually the problem or maybe the benefit is that uh, the regional budgets, they don't experience a huge uh, change uh, due to changing oil prices because uh, the oil, uh, first of all, because uh, the companies who, uh, which uh, the oil companies are vertically integrated companies. So the headquarters are located uh, in Moscow and Petersburg, and the majority of taxes are paid there. First of all, the second point is that um, the oil taxes, which I already mentioned, uh, is a tax for natural resource exploration, is paid 100% of the federal budget. Uh, all the custom duties for exporting oil and gas are also 100% paid to the federal government, federal budget. So uh, the, uh, the local budget, they can appropriate only part, uh, a small part of the uh, profit tax, uh, and, uh, some, and they also get uh, the personal income tax uh, from the people who are employed in these territories. So I will not say uh, that uh, both of these uh, income sources are heavily affected. Also, the investment program of these oil companies is also coming from the centralized funds from Moscow, and the, the regions are not uh, doing a lot in this field. So I think that, uh, of course, it may damage the situation of the, in the federal budget so far it may decrease the amount of uh, transfers which are sent from the federal budget to the regions. It may happen, uh, but uh, in a direct way, uh, the regions, I think, will not uh, be hurt a lot. Uh, the uh, big uh, portion of questions about um, about uh, uh, the situation in, uh, in uh, industrial enterprises and uh, and um, 
scientific organization in Siberia, which uh, uh, the gentleman said are working quite well, I would say uh, what, what I meant uh, was a little bit different thing, because uh, if you look on the statistics of industrial production in, in Russia uh, in large and in Siberian, federal district and as far east, you will definitely see that during the 90s and during the uh, last decade, the fall, uh, the decline uh, in industrial production was approximately 1.5 times bigger in Siberia than in, in Russia in general. And of course, there were some industries that were affected much worse, some of them not. Uh, but uh, when you are uh, saying about, when you are talking about you know, uh, actually high-tech uh, component, like uh, Krasnoyarsk, uh, different Krasnoyarsk factories we have also in, in the same city of Krasnoyarsk, we have uh, a company, uh, Enterprise, which is producing uh, s uh, communication satellites and all, a lot of uh, space components uh, for space missiles and so on. So I can really believe, and I do not uh, argue anything against, that uh, in this particular field it may be that the uh, decrease in production is not so big. Uh, and the uh, intellectual potential is definitely quite uh, quite impressive there. But uh, at the same time, uh, as uh, Mr. Kachin said, a lot of uh, these um, white elephants uh, have been uh, constructed there and they are really not working. A lot, a lot of big industrial enterprises of the top of times are abandoned, uh, even in the Krasnoyarsk and even on the southern belt uh, during this... Um, uh, uh, not, not far away from the Trans-Siberian Railroad. Another point was that uh, I um, was uh, presumably trying to say that the Siberia should be abandoned. N by no means. Uh, my idea was quite different. So it's not about, uh, you know, um, abandoning Siberia and uh, speaking about the Siberian curse. Uh, it's quite the, uh, the opposite. I think that Siberia may, be, may become a big engine of Russian economic growth if it is uh, left to itself, uh, if, if there is much less uh, regulation from, from, uh, from the center. Is because, look, you take out of the region much more money in the form of taxes and duties than you invest there. So it's, uh, it's, it, maybe it's necessary to, uh, to think about different kind of regional uh, investment funds of something, uh, some kind to share uh, the, you know, the, uh, the taxes, uh, s some of the federal taxes should be channeled into territories directly uh, to um, make uh, much, you know, to give much more uh, motives uh, for, for, for the regional uh, authorities to develop the business or to allow the businesses to develop. So when you are taking all the money to Moscow and then redistribute them, uh, it may be very some kind of effective during the time of war. But, uh, in, but now I think it's better to let uh, this region to, uh, to develop itself, just uh, providing it with some more liberal economic uh, legislation. Uh, so another po point was about um, what was about infrastructure uh, that uh, it should it cannot happen uh, the development of this region can't happen without big infrastructure projects and no one can rely on moving uh, the coal by planes definitely of course but the problem is that uh, look uh, what I was arguing for uh, was actually the uh, development of uh, this um, uh, natural resource uh, f 
deposits uh, in different parts of Siberia and making not a huge infrastructure, for example, taking the railroad from Baikal-Amur to Yakutsk and then to, to Chukotka, but just to, to, um, you know, to communicate, uh, to uh, bind these uh, places of natural resource exploration with, for example, seaports, which uh, may be constructed in the, uh, Pacific, uh, on the Pacific seashore, sea uh, and uh, somehow uh, making uh, a lot of you know, these resources are possible to uh, utilize on place. For example, if you have Norilsk, which is one of the biggest uh, or the biggest producer of um, uh, nickel and uh, palladium and uh, other rare metals in the world. So this is a, an enterprise which is uh, operated in quite close environment uh, when they uh, uh, take all, all, all these natural resources from, from the earth, they, they process it, and then they got the final result, which is nickel, and then they use two or three ships just to ship all the amount of this nickel uh, during the time of navigation to, uh, to European Russia and then to the uh, trading places in Rotterdam or somewhere else. So th the, uh, the same is, uh, this was my idea. So you shouldn't just take the, uh, the coal from Yakutsk and ship it to Vladivostok, uh, making the price uh, multiplied by six times or so. So you just, sh if you have some uh, a lot of deposits which can be used, you should do much more close to the final product uh, in place and then try to transport it with, with, with some uh, l lesser costs. Uh, it was also a question uh, of uh, budgeting. Can you just a little bit repeat it? Because I, I, w w what was the main point of? Is regional budget autonomy increasing? Decreasing? Ah, yeah, yeah, no, no. It's, it's definitely decreasing because, um, uh, look, uh, in uh, in mid 60s in mid 90s there were around uh, 35 uh, russian regions they were uh, which were quite self sufficient uh, on their budget incomes uh, now there are just six so uh, and this is decreasing from year to year uh, so the government uh, on the one hand the government takes a lot a lot of money from the regions on the other hand it uh, imposes on the regional government some new capabilities. Uh, so, for example, in 2012, when Mr. Putin came back to power, uh, he issued his famous decrees of the 7th of May, uh, uh, arguing that uh, the regional governments should now pay the majority of expenses, bear the majority of expenses on education and healthcare on the regional levels. So previously they were, uh, you know, uh, they were paid for Moscow. Now you have to pay a lion's share of, of these expenses by yourself uh, at the regional level. So therefore, you are really uh, quite short on resources, and more and more regions should apply for federal subsidies. And the federal subsidies are quite, you know, uh, are redistributed in a very, uh, how to say, um, yeah, non-transparent way. Yeah, because uh, now you have around uh, around 30 types of transfers, uh, from which only one uh, type is calculated on somehow you know uh, obvious formulas. And, and uh, for this, you have around 26% of all transfers, and 74% uh, on for 74% you should rely on the good relationship with the people, the administration in Moscow. So uh, definitely, I would say that the auto, uh, the, the uh, the 
element of autonomy is really shrinking. And I would say the biggest problem here is on the municipal level because, uh, for example, if you have, if you compare Moscow's budget to that of New York, uh, you will get that the difference uh, of budget uh, budget outlays for one people, for one inhabitant, both in Moscow, New York, New York City is. Uh, 2.2 times bigger in New York than in Moscow. Yeah. But if you compare Omsk, a quite big municipality of 1 million people with uh, this of San Diego, you will have 11 times. So uh, that's uh, as closer you go to, to the municipalities uh, in the country, the bigger is the difference. Uh, so, um, and the last uh, uh, question was from uh, uh, Alaska representative. So, um, it was also on infrastructure, uh, on, uh, on indigenous peoples. Uh, look, I, I, would uh, I would say that uh, uh, actually, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, I do not feel that the, there is a huge problem uh, of, you know, of ethnic character uh, in, in these regions because, for example, in Yakutsk, uh, you have uh, people for both from Yakutian origin and uh, Russian origin living together. Uh, and I don't even see that uh, the local people, they promote some kind of, you know, uh, big uh, program or big strategy of uh, uh, some, uh, you know, uh, uh, some special actions uh, for them. They have uh, maybe some privileges, but not, not, not very many of them. So... Uh, Actually, I never, uh, be, be, being honest, I never heard that uh, in Siberia and the Far East, uh, the, the problem of indigenous people were raised as one of the most crucial problems at all. So uh, may maybe it's 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 not a b it's uh, not good. Maybe it's uh, it may uh, have a positive impact if it, if it were. But I definitely will say that <coughs> it is not uh, the point which is. Uh, just put on, on, on the top of the agenda. Uh, my point of view is much, uh, Alaskan experience is much, I think, more interesting in uh, uh, pr promoting uh, all these, you know, um, uh, industries which can bring the products to the final stage. For example, if uh, one looks to uh, Alaska, you can see that the, on the, this particular state exports twice as much as uh, processed fish and seafood as the whole Russian Far East. Uh, and, uh, but uh, in Russia, uh, for, for different reasons, for many reasons, we prefer to export uh, just uh, fish we caught to Japan and uh, to South Korea when you uh, process it and uh, ship to all, all over the world uh, in, in a form uh, which is uh, ready for consumers. The same point is that Alaska has a very good experience in uh, making this Alaska Welfare Fund, uh, while uh, no one of Siberian or Far Eastern regions have nothing uh, which can be compared to, compared to this. So I think we can learn a lot from Alaskan experience, but uh, I, I would not say uh, that uh, the problem of local people is really uh, on, on the edge. Well, uh, that was uh, terrific. Uh, uh, I neglected a, a very important uh, part of uh, Dr. Inezemsev's uh, biography in my introduction before I thank him and you. Uh, that uh, he was here at the CSIS for about four months earlier this year as a visiting scholar. And so uh, it's a special pleasure to, uh, to, welcome, to welcome you back. And uh, we hope very much that uh, uh, one of the results of that uh, 
period here will be a, uh, <coughs> a, public, a CSIS publication outlining many of the themes about uh, Siberian development that uh, he's been discussing with us today. And uh, we will look forward to you coming back here in 2015 uh, to continue this, this discussion. This has been a really uh, excellent discussion. Uh, I thank uh, everybody for coming and sharing their thoughts and uh, excellent questions. And, uh, and Slava for your uh, terrific presentation and also very thoughtful uh, remarks in response to all of the questions. Uh, let me just note that uh, I think this is our last public event of 2014 for the Russia and Eurasia program. Uh, so I wish everybody a very happy holiday season and look forward to seeing everybody in the new year. And uh, let's hope for uh, more peace and uh, good health and prosperity uh, in the coming new year. Thank you very much. Thank you.